Lord, we come in order to ask you for help because, Lord, we need you to work tonight. Lord, we need you to open our eyes to see wondrous things in your word. God, we we have hearts that are going in so many different directions. And so, Lord, we pray that you would unite our hearts this evening to fear your name. That you would free us from distractions, free us from anxieties, free us from worries, so that we can sit at your word and worship. We love you, Lord. We are so privileged that we get to see who you are in this text. So we pray that you would speak. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I mentioned, this is the second part of this passage that we're going to be looking at. Last week, we looked at the first number of verses that Elizabeth read. We saw that Christians live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We we live under Jesus' kingly rule, and through our allegiance to him, we confess, we make the good confession that his kingdom is over all, that he is God's king who rules over God's people in God's place. In Christianity, we are called to submit every area of our lives to Christ. There's no area of our life that is off limits for his rule. We cannot hold back a single part of us. We can't keep one foot in this earth and one foot in this kingdom of heaven. We are either all in or all out. Light does not coexist with darkness. Truth does not coexist with falsehood. As Christians, we submit every area of our lives to the reign and rule of Christ. We live in such a way, as the Apostle Paul says, if it was not true, if everything that we've been singing about tonight, everything we've been reading and praying and that we're listening to, if this wasn't true, then the whole world should pity us because we are so committed to Christ's kingdom that we live in a way that is foolish in the eyes of the world. We don't live to be respectable here. We live as citizens of another kingdom. But, as we saw last week, we are in the already and the not yet. We are between Christ's resurrection and his return, and we walk by faith and not by sight. And what that means is that we need something, something that we can put all of our hope in that will hold us. When the storms of life blow around us, Ajith used the illustration of an anchor in his prayer, that, that we're held fast because we have confidence in something that is weighty and true. We need something to guarantee that Jesus' kingdom really will come to pass. That what we believe really will one day become sight. There's an expression in my home country that a chain is only as strong as its weakest link. I don't know if you guys have heard that expression before. You could have a chain made up of the sturdiest, heaviest links in the world, tying them together. But if one of them were corroded, one of them was rusted, one of them was faulty, 
that chain's no good. It will not hold. You will not be able to trust that it will carry the weight that you need it to. In our passage this evening, we have a perfect chain describing God's characteristics that will bear the weight of our whole life. You can take this chain and you can hold on for dear life when it feels like you're drowning in the world or you're free-falling and this chain will hold you. It will support you. God's attributes that Paul lists here form a perfect chain that we can trust. And when we see in our text is that God is strong enough, he is good enough, he is holy enough, he is loving enough to sustain us and to be able to carry every bit of our hope for the future. And that's what we're going to see as our main thing that we see this evening is that the character of God guarantees the kingdom of Christ. If you were to look and you say, how do I know that I can trust it? Paul goes, look at God's character. The most important words in our passage this evening is the word who or whom. Paul is describing who God is to show that we can trust him. We're going to be zooming in tonight on verses 15 through 16. Elizabeth read these earlier, but what we see is we see that God, who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no eye has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. We're focusing on a description of God. And as we look at these, this passage, we're going to see three characteristics that unfold. First, we're going to see God's authority. Then we're going to see his immortality. And then finally, we're going to see his purity. So verse 15 starts by looking at God's authority. And so that's where we'll start. Paul says, he who is the blessed and only sovereign the King of kings, and the Lord of lords. Do you know what authority is? What is authority? Authority is the right to rule. It is the recognized power, ability, right to rule. There's different spheres of authority. So you may have a teacher who has authority in the classroom. This teacher is able to say, students should behave in this way. They need to make sure they do this thing, these things. And they have the ability to exercise their authority in that sphere. But when that student leaves and goes to their home, they are no longer under that teacher's authority. The teacher can't say, you need to clean up your room. They're under a different sphere of authority. They're under their parents' authority. There's different spheres. There are different areas. There's also different levels. So let's go back to our teacher. Our teacher has authority over the classroom, but the teacher is not the ultimate authority over that classroom. The principal or the administration is over that classroom, and 
The teacher can't say, forget you, I do what I want. This is my domain. Because they would be fired. <laughs> the administration is the one that rules over the school. That teacher's authority is derivative. It comes from someone else. It's not inherent to them. There's levels to authority. That's not the way the teacher is. That's not how God's authority is. God's authority is completely and utterly unique. His authority is over all areas of our lives. There's not a sphere of our life, an area that says, God, you don't touch this. I rule here. God's rule is over every area of our lives. His authority penetrates every aspect of our being. He has authority over the way we relate to our family. He has authority and the right to tell us how we should think about ourselves, even. How we relate to our government. How we relate to our fellow Christians. How we relate to the lost. We look and we don't set the pace for our lives. God is the one who has authority over every area of our lives. Abraham Kuyper, a famous Dutch theologian from the 1800s, said, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is Lord over all, does not exclaim, Mine. You look at the rule, it's all God's rule. You look at the domain of the universe, Christ exercises authority over it. The sphere of God's sovereignty extends to every square inch of this universe. And no one is above God. God's authority is not derived from someone else. He is the highest. He is the source of his own authority. Paul calls him the king of kings, the Lord of lords. There's no one that's above him. God alone is high. So God's authority is over all, and God himself is over all. He is the highest and greatest of all rulers. And notice the adjective that Paul uses to describe it. We saw on the screen earlier, he is the blessed and only sovereign. Blessed and only ruler. Sometimes we can think of authority and either because of our background, because of our culture, because past experience, we view authority as a stern and severe thing. We hear words like authoritarian, and I don't know if I've ever heard that word used in a positive way. Like, he's such an authoritarian boss. Love that guy. We, we tend to think of authority as a negative thing, and yet Paul says God is the blessed authority. And the word that Paul uses here, this word could be translated as happy. As happy. There is a word just for blessing or for blessed. That's not the word that Paul uses. Paul uses the Greek word makarios, which means happy, blessed, or referring to the state of happiness. God is not a stern and severe king. Chiefly, he is blessed. He is happy. He exists in a state of eternal joy. 
I love how Randy Alcorn puts it in his book, Happiness. It's a fantastic book. This is one of those, sometimes you just read something and it crosses perfectly with what you're going to be preaching on. I was reading this earlier this week and it just jumped out on the page. This is who God is. God is a happy God. Randy Alcorn says that as the only infinite being in the universe, God has within himself not only infinite holiness, love, and goodness, things that we tend to think about with God, holy, love, good, we know those things, but also infinite peace, joy, and delight. He is truly the happy God. And I love what he says. He says, God's unhappiness with sin is temporary because sin itself is a temporary aberration, one dealt by Christ. Sin had a beginning, and sin will have an ending. Happiness, however, is the underlying nature of the timeless God. His happiness without beginning eternally preceded sin's birth and will forever continue after sin's death. The Bible teaches that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, before the world was made, they existed in perfect joy, perfect pleasure, perfect happiness. So when we see that God is the blessed God, we should not think of God being the angry dictator who rules over all, just waiting for you to mess up. He's the happy God, the happy God whose laughter fills the universe. The happy God who Zephaniah says rejoices over his people with singing. God is so happy with his people that he sings over them. He is the blessed God. You can bank your entire life upon God. You can walk by faith putting all of your hope for the future upon God because God rules over all. He has the authority to bring it to pass. Nothing can stop his plan or his purpose. He answers to no one, and his purposes will stand. The first chain in our link is that God's authority is a sure foundation for our hope. The second chain is God's immortality. God's immortality. Look at verse 16. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality. Immortality refers to God's existence forever. God will live forever. He has always existed, and he always will exist. There was never a moment when God did not exist, and there will never be a moment when God will cease to exist. He is immortal. But, how does this help us bank our hope in the sure coming of Christ's kingdom? How does God's immortality help us? I mean, I think we can get how immortality, the idea of God has the authority to do it, but immortality, how does this help us? It does it in a couple ways. The first is that it gives us a sense of permanence, a permanence to God's kingdom. How many earthly kingdoms have been ruined because a good king died and the next generation did not rule in justice or in faithfulness. 
I mean, if you read through the Old Testament, the history of Israel and Judah is at best a good king who dies and his son is less bad than him. Usually what happens is a king dies and the next generation completely ruins the kingdom. It's because death has stopped a otherwise just and peaceful rule. But the good news of God's immortality is that God's rule is never threatened by death. Can you imagine that? I mean, we live all of our lives threatened by death. All of y'all have face masks on right now because of the threat of death. Or because at one point in time, there was a significant threat of death. We walk across the street. We're aware of death. We're aware of danger. We recognize how mortal we are. God has never once been threatened by death. God has never feared that there would be another king that would come and displace him, would overthrow him. He is immortal. There is no chance that his kingship will come to an end. Psalm 145 puts it like this. It says, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And your dominion, that is your rule, endures through all generations. There will never be a wicked king who will come and replace God. There will never be an assassination attempt on God's life. He is not corrupted by trying to maintain his power. He is immortal. He rules forever and his immortality guarantees that his kingdom will last forever as a place of peace and justice and goodness. That in itself shows us why we can trust in God's immortality as a foundation for the coming future kingdom of Christ. But there's another way that's also helpful and maybe, maybe, maybe even more amazing when we stop and think about it. Because God, as the possessor of immortality, as the one who has immortality, with that immortality, he prepares us to live with him forever. He prepares us for his kingdom. The only other time this word immortality shows up in the New Testament is in 1 Corinthians 15, one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible, where Paul talks about the resurrection of the dead. Paul says, I tell you, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, that is never to die again, and we shall all be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. There's our word. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? 
O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, and just listen to the hope language that's in these verses. Paul's conclusion from this is, Therefore, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. God's the one who possesses immortality. And what he does is he makes us immortal. He gives us immortality so that we can dwell with him forever in his perfect kingdom. He will not only change the universe, he will change us as well. He will make us able to enjoy his presence forever. We labor in this world under the weight of perishable bodies, bodies that wear out. We labor in this world under the weight of sinful bodies, bodies that are torn by sin. Some people, I don't know if you've heard people express themselves as saying, when I look back at my life, I have no regrets. I wouldn't change a thing. That's not a Christian way to look at it. When I look back at my last week, I am filled with regret. I am grieved by the way that I can think thoughts that are so bitter, or so selfish, or so angry, or so covetous. I look at the way I can speak harshly with my tongue to my wife or to my children. I look at my hands and the way I have either used them for sinful purposes or for my own glory or have been idle with them. I am filled with regrets because I have a sinful nature. I am not fit to live forever as I currently am. I don't want to live forever with regrets. But one day, Christ will bring his kingdom to earth. And the part of me that I am grieved by, my sinful nature, the Luke Humphrey that I'm ashamed of and that I regret so much, he will be no more. And I will put on immortality and dwell with God, the immortal God, forever untainted by sin, untainted by selfishness, untainted by pride, and forever and ever and ever and ever, I will live a life with zero regrets. A life that enjoys God perfectly the way I was supposed to enjoy God perfectly. And this leads to our final characteristic that we look at, God's purity. God's purity. Look again at verse 16. Paul says, Who dwells, God, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. When Paul says, Whom no one has ever seen or can see, he might be referring to God's invisibility. So God the Father is spirit. He does not have a body like man. But I think the context shows that Paul actually has purity in mind. 
the context of dwelling in unapproachable light shows that what's on Paul's mind is God's holiness or his purity. Light in the Bible doesn't simply mean brightness. It doesn't mean light, as in these lights. It means goodness. It means righteousness. Darkness symbolizes evil. Light symbolizes good. We see this in Ephesians 5. Paul says to Christians, at one time you were in darkness, but now you are in the light of the Lord. Walk as children of light. What does it look like to walk as children of light? The fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. Light is ethical in the Bible. It is moral. God dwells in unapproachable light because he is pure and perfect. He is completely and utterly good and holy. Those who are impure, imperfect, sinful, are not able to stand in his presence. He is unapproachable. We think of Moses in Exodus 33 and Exodus 34, what Ajith read for us. Moses, who wanted to see God's glory. Moses, who spoke to God as a friend, the Bible says, and he could not see God's face and live because Moses was a sinner. Even Moses couldn't see God's face. We think of the prophet Isaiah, this holy prophet who would speak God's law to God's people. When he sees in a vision the glory of the Lord, he recognizes that he deserves to die. He is a sinful man with sinful lips from a people with sinful lips. He was undone before the purity of God. And yet, God's purity is not something to be feared. In fact, God's purity makes the other two characteristics, his authority and his immortality, something to be worshipped and loved and received rather than something to be avoided. Can you imagine if there were a king of kings, a lord of lords, who had authority over every sphere, at every level, who lived forever, no chance his kingdom would end, and he was wicked. Can you imagine what that would be? That would be a nightmare. We wouldn't be praising him. We would be hiding from him. We would be running away from him. But our God is pure. He is perfect. Which means we look at his reign and his rule and we worship it becomes the best news in the kingdom, in the earth, because his forever kingdom will be a pure place, because he is pure. His forever kingdom will be a perfect place, because he is perfect. And it gets even better, because this God who dwells in unapproachable light is made known through Jesus. Jesus brings us into his presence. Jesus, the second member of the Trinity, 2,000 years ago, took on flesh. The Son of God came and dwelt among us. 
No one had ever seen God, but Jesus made him known. When you looked at Jesus, you were looking at divinity. And when we see Jesus in all of his perfections, his tenderness, his compassion, his love, his righteousness, we see the invisible God made visible. He is the radiance of the glory of God. Jesus brings us out of darkness and into light. He says so much in John 12. Jesus says, whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. That is the Father. I have come into the world as light. So whoever believes in me would not remain in darkness. Jesus gives us access to God. We go, the New Testament says, boldly into the presence of God. We go to a place where Moses and Isaiah were terrified to go. Why? Because we go clothed in Christ's righteousness. We go covered by Christ. When God looks at us, he sees the perfections of his Son. And notice how that is ours. Whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. We gain access to God through faith in Jesus. We live under his holy rule by turning from sin and darkness and coming into the light. We don't earn this access to God. Christ earned it for us. He is our representative. And when he stands before the Father, he pleads on our behalf so that we can stand before the Father as well. We live under God's happy rule by turning from the darkness of sin and seeing the beauty of the light of God's purity. What this means is that we can joyfully submit to God's authority. God's authority is not something we grudge, but we love. When he reveals himself to us through his word, we open up every aspect of our being to it. Whether it's our sexuality, whether it's our employment, whether it's our culture, we submit everything to his happy rule. We live our lives in light of God's immortality, and we pursue that which will truly last. This frees us from pursuing the praise of other people that will not endure. We can, like Jesus, be willing to bear earthly shame because we have honor and glory from God that will endure forever. And we live purely as God is pure. He has given us the spirit of adoption, sealing us as our down payment for our future inheritance in his heavenly kingdom so that we may walk as children of light that we truly are, being holy as he is holy. And by faith we look forward to the day when we will see him face to face and we will dwell with him. Revelation 21 says, Behold the dwelling place of God. This is seeing in the future. Saying the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with him and they will be his people. And God himself 
will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Christian, the most important thing in your life is whether you live for Christ's rule now. And the confidence that you can have in living for Christ's rule is the character of God. Who God is guarantees that Christ's kingdom will pass. And this promise will one day come to pass. So we can trust him with our whole lives. And we can trust him for all of our lives. As we fight the fight of faith and take hold of eternal life. Let's pray. Lord God, we do praise you. We praise you for who you are as we have been looking at the way that that is such good news for us. Lord, I pray that you would help us. Help us to live as people who have seen you by faith. And who hold on to the chain of your characteristics so that we can persevere to the end as we walk by faith and not by sight. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.